All right, brethren, as Pastor Carlson has reminded you, this is the most difficult time. Test the mettle of the preacher and the listener. But we have a loving Heavenly Father who knows our frame, who remembers that we are dust. And so let's ask him in faith that he'll help us, that we may get optimum profit from this hour together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we can address you as our Father who is not only in the heavens, exalted, transcendent, far above us, yet you are that tender, loving Father who knows our frame, who remembers that we are dust. Look upon us in our dustiness, in our need of your special help in this hour We do pray that you who have made us what we are as men with our physical frame, that you would give us special help. Have you not promised they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength? They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Grant, Lord, the fulfillment of that promise to us that we may be alert and active mentally and spiritually, that you would help me, give me wisdom to know how much of this material should be covered in this hour. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to superintend the time before us. Come, we pray, O God, and meet with us again, we plead, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, brethren, in this hour, we take up once more the vital issue of the preaching ministry of the man of God, having underscored for you the importance of this division of our study and some of the major perspectives that will shape our approach to the subject. I then proceeded to lay before you a broad overview of the five areas that we will eventually cover in this unit, and then under the first of those five categories, we covered the heading, The Act of Preaching, the Preacher's Present Relationship to God as He Preaches. We then moved on to begin to consider the second category, namely, the preacher's relationship to himself in the act of preaching. And under this heading in the previous lecture, we focused on the preacher's physical condition, appearance, and bearing with special emphasis upon his general physical condition, his clothing, his grooming, his posture, and his facial expression. In this lecture, we'll proceed to the second subdivision of the preacher's relationship to himself in the act of preaching, namely, his emotional constitution and activity in the act of preaching. As is so often the case in the course of these lectures, I do inwardly tremble as I approach this vast and complex subject. Although there's a paucity of available literature on this aspect of preaching from contemporary writers, we dare not be reluctant to address this issue head-on and with some degree of thoroughness and thankfully with much help from the older writers. And it is essential for us to address the issue. A cursory analysis of our God-created humanity clearly reveals the vital place of the emotions in ordinary living oral communication. 
the little girl breaks her doll and she comes with a broken heart with tears in her eyes and her squeaky little voice, Daddy, can you fix the broken arm of my dolly? Her emotions dictate how she uses her voice and expresses her concern to her daddy. Furthermore, we see grown men at a basketball game, March Madness, acting like madmen, hollering their full heads off because their hearts are wrapped up in Duke or in my area, Michigan State, coming within two points of getting into the finals. And you see men totally abandoned in an emotional attachment that finds clear expression not only in their vocal activity, but in their physical activity. So just a cursory analysis of our God-created humanity clearly reveals the vital place of the emotions in real, living, oral communication. Furthermore, the scriptures make many references to the emotional attendance of preaching. And your experience and my experience, along with the history of preaching, confirms the powerful influence of the emotions in preaching, both with respect to the one preaching and those listening to that preaching. There is, in the way God has made us, this susceptibility to emotional contagion. I learned that very early as a child. My folks had an old 78 RPM record called the Laughing Record. And all there was on that record was a man who started laughing. <laughs> and before he was done, anyone sitting in a circle in the living room was falling off their chairs with laughter. No jokes were told, no stories were told, the sheer emotional contagion of laughter. If I were a little more carnal, I'd try the experiment here and see how much we'd have to do before we're all falling off our chair with laughter. But it's just a part of human experience, and we observe it if our eyes and our ears are open. So, in the light of these things, we dare not skirt the issue because of its many difficulties. We can't afford the luxury of dim and indistinct views concerning the legitimate or illegitimate place of the emotions in the act of preaching. And what I propose to do in this particular lecture is to set before you some introductory perspectives regarding the emotions and their function in oral communication in general. Hopefully, if I get through this material, the subsequent lecture, I'll seek to give some specific and practical directives for the regulating and the cultivation of wholesome emotional dimensions in our preaching. So in the time afforded for our lecture in this hour, I hope to cover three categories. I'm not sure where we'll be after the first two I will have to take a look at the clock, and if it looks like it would be too much to press into the third, we'll carry it over into the next lecture. Number one, I want us to wrestle with coming up with a working definition and description of the emotions. What do we mean when we talk about our emotions or our feelings? And then I want to spend some time analyzing with you the origin and moral quality of the emotions. We live in a day 
when people think that the emotions are supreme, they have no essential moral quality, where your emotions go, you go, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I want us to think hard and not too long about the origin and the moral quality of the emotions, and then if we have time, the strategic place and function of the emotions in oral communication in general. First of all, then, a working definition and description of the emotions. Man is not only a rational, thinking, perceiving creature. We are also emotional or feeling creatures as well. In this reality, we are indeed image of God. No man in his right mind would debate this simple statement. We can no more deny the reality of our feelings than we can deny the reality of our existence. Whatever we may think of them or however we may handle them, we must reckon with the reality that we are not pure mind, but that we have these things that we call our emotions or our feelings. Webster dis, uh, defines emotions as the state or capacity of having the feelings aroused to the point of awareness. I have found a definition of the emotions in the Baker Dictionary of Theology quite helpful, and I'm going to read it for you. It's not too lengthy. Emotions, like sensations, elude precise definition as the idea of sweetness, sourness, or bitterness can be conveyed only by reference to an object which possesses these qualities, so the meaning of a specific emotion can be communicated to another only by a reference to that emotion. Everyone knows what is meant by love, fear, anger, worry, etc., but it is most difficult to convey the meaning of any one of these emotions by an attempted definition. However, all emotions have in common the general idea of being stirred up, excited, perturbed. That's an effort to at least begin to approach something of a definition or a description of the emotions. For our purposes, I will define the emotions as the diversified conscious sensibilities of the soul. In an excellent essay entitled Spurious Religious Excitement, R. L. Dabney, that perceptive theologian, makes the following statement that I again find helpful in trying to get a handle on a definition or description of emotions or feelings. The function of feeling is as essential to the human spirit and as ever-present as the function of cognition or thinking. The two are ever combined as the heat rays and the light rays are intermingled in the sunbeams. But the consciousness intuitively recognizes the difference between the two functions, so that it is superfluous to define them. Feeling is the temperature of thought. Your mind fixes on a given concept, a given thought. 
The temperature is what you feel when you think that thought, either creating a sense of love, desire to draw near to that object or that person, or aversion, hate, distaste. I like that statement. Feeling is the temperature of thought. And then you see the connection of that with preaching. What are the thoughts that are the stuff of our preaching? Well, our emotional attendance will be the temperature of that thought. What does that thought produce as our minds and hearts are engaged with it in the act of preaching? What pain is to the nerve endings, what sweetness is to the taste buds, what light is to the eye, so feelings are to the soul. Emotions are the feelings aroused to the point of consciousness. They lie, as it were, dormant in the soul, but when they are aroused to the point of consciousness, then we know what the feeling of love is, the feeling of hate, the feeling of fear, the feeling of dread. These are the emotions, are the feelings aroused to the point of consciousness. Now, within this broad definition can be placed such things as joy, grief, love, anger, anxiety, pathos, enthusiasm, and other like states of the conscious sensibilities of the soul of man. Now, am I making any sense? Does this resonate with you? What are my feelings? What do I feel right now besides drowsy? What do I feel in terms of my feelings being aroused to the point of consciousness? Wrestle with that. Think about that as we try to assess the place of the emotions in our preaching. Then we come secondly to the origin and the moral quality of the emotions. It's abundantly clear that the emotional constitution of man is a created reality. In fact, it's a vital part, a vital part of the image of God in us. God is a God who has emotions. He is not pure and undiluted power or the pure light of mind and intellect. He is a personal God who is not only infinite in power and knowledge, but he has an infinite capacity and faculty to love, to hate, to rejoice, and to grieve. All of those emotions are patently attributed to God in the Scriptures. And God didn't put them there to confuse us. The speculation of certain theologians notwithstanding, God loves, God hates, God rejoices, God grieves. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Man loves, man hates, man rejoices, man grieves. He is image of God. And in contemplating these things, the safest path to walk in order to avoid entangling ourselves in unedifying philosophical subtleties and distinctions is constantly to remember that the God whom we worship, love, and serve is the God revealed to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He said in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has literally exegeted him. This is one reason why in all my years of ministry I could never bring myself to bring a series of sermons on the attributes of God in the normal way where God is sliced up into communicable and non-communicable attributes. I said, if I ever preach a series on the attributes of God, I'm going to preach the attributes of God through the grid of the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. So I've never done it. I haven't come to the place. And I found some juicy stuff in Owen recently where that's precisely what Owen says. So I feel comfortable when I can hide under the skirt of the good old doctor. But that's just a little aside. In his masterful essay entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord, an essay I seek to read periodically, B.B. Warfield demonstrates that the full range of emotional capacity, function, and activity is displayed in our Lord as he is revealed to us in the gospel narratives. And what's interesting, he makes this point that when the gospel writers describe an emotional state of our Lord, they're not psychologizing him. They describe that emotion as it came to some visible manifestation in our Lord, and they saw Jesus looking around with anger said. They could see the anger uh, flashing in his eye, And they attributed the emotion of anger as it was manifested in a way that their eyes and their ears could perceive that emotion. Our blessed Lord manifests joy, grief, anger, disappointment, fear, fear. The writer to Hebrews says he heard in that he feared. In the days of his flesh he prayed with strong crying and tears to him who was able to deliver him from death and he was heard in that he feared disappointment. What could you, you three, you that I've given you great privilege to be intimate with me, what could you not watch with me? One hour? Simon, Simon, I came into your home. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint me. You didn't give me the common courtesies owed to any ordinary Palestinian. Disappointment is an emotion which our Lord felt and manifested and clearly, patently expressed. Fear, love, compassion... All of these things are true of our Lord as the ideal and sinless man, but also as the perfect revealer of God. Octavius Winslow has a very helpful book as well. It's entitled The Sympathy of Christ, in which he focuses upon several aspects of our Lord's emotions, which in turn are revelatory of the character of God himself. He has a whole chapter on the sigh of Christ. When he's going to heal that man, it says he sighed. And what lay behind that? What emotions were producing that sigh? Now let's go back far beyond our Lord to the garden. 
Consider Adam. We're dealing with the origin and moral quality of the emotions. Consider Adam in his pre-fallen state and condition. His mind had an accurate perception of reality. When he looked out at the world around him, none of the, as we would say, the, the lines that came into his eyes registered on his retina, none of them were crooked or skewed. He perceived reality as it really was. His cognitive faculties played no tricks on him. Furthermore, his will was positively committed to righteousness. Therefore, all of his emotional states and experiences which attended his clear cognition and his upright volition were fully virtuous. You can't help but read the excitement and emotion of joy when God wakes him up from his uh, anesthetized state and brings him Eve and he looks at her. She's like me, but she's different from me. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Do you think he said, it's not bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh? No, no. There's excitement, the emotion of excitement and gratitude when God said that here's the garden. I want you to dress it and keep it. Can you imagine when Adam had spent a day in wholesome, God-exalting labor and looked back at the fruit of his labor that he didn't experience the emotion of joy and thankfulness and delight in the work of his hands and lifted up his heart in gratitude to his God. So prior to the fall and in our Lord Jesus, all of the actings of human emotion were virtuous. They formed a part of that total conformity to the will of God which the original creation reflected and which God called very good. And it was the perfection of our Lord's emotions along with the rest of his life which enabled the Father to say of him when he stood in the waters of Jordan, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. All the thoughts that his mind thinks please me. All of the feelings that his soul experiences please me. All of the choices of his will please me. Now think what that meant for our Lord in true humanity. Do you think that he ever got his finger caught in the door as a little boy? If he did, when that door closed on his finger, he would have felt the emotion of pain and he would have squealed, Mommy, my finger's caught in the door, help me. A purely human emotion. The first time he squealed with delight as a little child, perhaps his mother gave him some special meal on his birthday. And when he saw it on the table, can you picture our perfect Lord squealing with delight? Oh, Mommy, that's a Wonderful. Thank you so much. I love you, Mommy. A fresh burst of love coming out of that pure, holy soul. Ultimately, the emotions of indescribable grief and pain was he was abandoned on the cross. And that emotion that gave vent to the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I like to believe that when 
just before he committed his spirit to his father, that when he cried out to Telestai, it stands accomplished. He had a fresh baptism of holy joy. It's been worth it all. I have finished the work my father gave me to do. We need to think of how the emotions were manifested in our perfect Lord. But, and here's the sad but, with the entrance of sin, all has undergone a radical disruption, including our emotions. Sinful man now loves what he ought to hate and hates what he ought to love. He's emotionally stirred by error and yet apathetic before the truth. Total depravity means that the whole fabric of our emotional constitution has been tainted and twisted by sin, and in us as believers, the remains of our sin skew our emotional states. It's because of that that James had to write to people who named the name of Christ and say these words to them. James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. They were laughing and full of giddy joy when they ought to have heaviness and mourning. Their emotional state was totally incongruous to their true spiritual state. And in calling them to a change of emotional state, James is calling them to the change of internal perspective concerning their sin that it might produce the mourning and the heaviness. However, with the restorative and recreative work of God in regeneration, that work touches the whole man, the mind, the will, the emotions. Hence, no little part of the supernatural work of grace is described as impinging upon and being manifested in sanctified emotions. Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, I'm sorry, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. When the kingdom of God invades the heart and life of a man or woman, one of its manifestations is at the emotional level. Righteousness, objective. Peace and joy are emotions. And if we're in the kingdom, we'll know something of emotional disruption from what we were before we entered the kingdom, the fruit of the Spirit. Look how many of them touch in a dominant way the emotions. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's more than emotions, but it is emotion. Joy, peace. Now, long-suffering is a character trait, not so much at the emotional level. Long-suffering, let's see, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, meekness, self-control, at least in the opening of those ninefold, that ninefold fruit of the Spirit, there is the emotional engagement and then the command of Romans twelve fifteen: We are to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. 
It is a biblical duty that our emotions will be regulated in such a way that we truly empathize with our brethren. And then when Jesus gives that beautiful composite picture of the sons and daughters of the kingdom, blessed are those who mourn, mourn. There's an emotion of grief. To such belongs the kingdom. So we learn from these and many other passages that grace does not neuter the emotions. It purifies them, puts them back in the right relationship to an enlightened understanding and a rectified will. In the scheme of grace, the emotions are to be influenced by the truth. And when they are, they become holy emotions and they are not to be despised or neutered. So, in seeking to understand our emotions, we must not only focus upon their origin, their moral quality, but remind ourselves that remaining sin still influences our emotion in adverse ways. Furthermore, just as sin has crippled many of our other faculties, some men have experienced what I call broken circuits in their emotional constitution. Circuits which need to be mended and repaired if they are ever to understand and experience the proper place of their emotions in connection with preaching. I remember some time ago uh, having some contact with a couple, been married 17 years, and the wife said, I've never seen my husband once shed a tear. That man had broken circuits. Broken circuits that need to be mended. If in 17 years of marital life, living in the real world, she never saw a tear. Something's bad wrong. Well, if that man was in the ministry, there'd be something bad wrong with his preaching. Because the circuits that ought to be mended by grace still remain broken. So, concluding this section of the lecture, I would heartily recommend you read the essay by Dabney. In it, he lays bare some of the most helpful insights on the emotions in conjunction with religious truth. It's his article in Discussions, Evangelical and Theological, Volume 3, Essay Number 1. And then I recommend Dabney's exposition of 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, found in Volume 1, and then I give the pages. Let me give you a little sampling of Dabney's very perceptive insight to this matter of the emotions and how they function in religion and how we need to see through certain aspects of their function. The first fact to which we would call attention is that all excitements about religion are not therefore good or pious or sanctifying. It may be supposed that a thing so obvious would need no remark, but it is amazing how blindly multitudes of Christians credit any strong emotion about religion as being, of course, wholesome and beneficial emotion. That the man feels acutely that he's been profoundly disturbed and has attained to more comfortable emotions seems to be all these good people demand in order to think well of him. And any excitement about religion is hailed as a precious religious revival. It is forgotten that grace is supernatural. 
while a multitude of religious emotions are very natural. The word religion has been so long used as the same with Christianity that men have lost sight of the fact that there is a multitude of religions, some bad, yea, vile, and only one good, that all mankind down to the basest pagan tribes have had their religious systems and religious fears, anxieties, joys, and triumphs. Emotion merely religious may be compatible with the most depraved and atrocious state of character and with creeds utterly false. I remember one time A.W. Tozer describing the woman in a little village in a South American country where there was the worship of Mary. And he said, when you see that woman with the look of utter devotion in her eyes, kneeling before an image of Mary and tears streaming down her cheeks, muttering prayers to Mary, she's having a genuine, emotional, religious experience. She's not playing to the crowd. Her heart is engaged with the Blessed Mother as she mumbles her prayers, believing that the mother will present them to the son and the son to the father. And so Dabney's making the same point. Emotion merely religious may be compatible with the most depraved and atrocious state of character. Turkish dervishes, Hindu fakirs, and Indian medicine men have their religious revivals just as truly as our ill-judging churches. That is, they have their seasons of prevalent and contagious religious emotions, agitating at once large masses of men. Now, since these things are so, would it not be reasonable to suppose that poor human nature may frequently be subject to these spreading impulses of merely natural, unsanctifying feelings about religion in our Christian lands as well as in heathendom, and that there's probably a great deal of feeling here also about the soul which yet does no good to the soul? Indeed, these contagious accesses of feeling are so natural to the human race that they may occur about many other subjects besides religion. We've seen our political revivals, fostered by inflammatory speeches, songs, badges, processions, which were as truly revivals as, and perhaps a little less worthless than, many religious excitements. If you think our political process is marred by nastiness, read John Adams by McCullough. We don't know nothing about nastiness. You read what went on in those times when different ones were being put forward for president and vice president and the stuff that appeared in the newspapers. It looks the worst stuff we have. It makes it look like child's play. I, I was absolutely astounded reading that book. I said, ain't no new thing under the sun. No new thing under the sun. And he's saying, yes, there is great excitement and agitation. It is not enough then to produce feeling about the soul. We must aim to produce right feeling. And this is only produced by revealed truth, intelligibly presented to the understanding and applied by a supernatural agent. Marvelous sentence. If the emotional disruption is produced by revealed truth, 
intelligently presented to the understanding and applied by a supernatural agent. All else, no matter how genuinely warm or intense, is only that sorrow of the world that works death and needs to be repented of. The whole labor of the wise minister, therefore, will be to replace this natural religious feeling by the supernatural. Dabney, with his keen mind, has gone to the heart of some of these very vital distinctions with respect to the emotions. And then I highly recommend B.B. Warfield's essay that I've already alluded to on the person and work of Christ. The article uh, is entitled that. And then Brian Borgman's excellent book. We've been studying it for months here in the adult class under Pastor Smith's guidance. His book called Feelings and Faith. He opens up that book with a solid theological Uh, exposition of what the emotions are, the place they have in the life of the Christian, and then deals very perceptively in a kind of modern puritanic way with how to mortify sinful emotions, how to grow in godly emotions. Now, having sought to lay before you a working definition and description of the emotions, having spent some time analyzing the origin and the moral quality of the emotions, I think it probably wise to break here. You men have been very good in keeping your eyes up, but this section is going to take me too much time to prevail upon you at this time in the afternoon, so maybe I'll gain a few brownie points if I quit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful that you did not make us worms or squirrels or whales or dolphins, but you made us human beings after your likeness and after your image. And while we are deeply grieved that that image has been marred and twisted and in many ways is so grotesque from what it should be, We bless you that by the mighty power of your Spirit, you have recreated us in union with Christ. And you are restoring that image of yourself after the pattern of your beloved Son. And the day is coming when it's going to be complete. And we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. Oh God, we thank you that you made us creatures with emotions that we can feel and feel deeply, and how we long to have those emotions tethered by your word, disciplined and controlled by truth, that we may rejoice at the things we ought to rejoice in and grieve at the things we ought to grieve. And as we think of the emotions in their place in preaching, that we would know how to control and direct our emotional energies, that they may serve the cause of truth and never militate against it. Oh God, take us in hand. Teach us, we pray, as I seek in that next lecture to home in on this whole matter of the place and function of the emotions in our preaching. Lord, help me that I may give truth and sound counsel in these vital issues. We pray that you would bless us in these moments together. We ask in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen.